tonight on Arena. In TV reviews, Big Boys, The Artful Dodger and Last One Laughing and Emily Wilson on her new translation of Homer's Iliad. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and if you want to watch us live, you can watch the live stream on RTE.ie forward slash Arena. We start this evening with our roundup of what to watch on the small screen. You may have seen and heard Graham Norton uh, talking about a new comedy series in Prime Video called Last One Laughing. Ireland, which he will present. It involves some of Ireland's top comedians doing their best to not crack a smile at each other's jokes. Not as easy as it sounds, I have to say. One of Charles Dickens' most memorable characters, the artful Dodger, gets the Disney treatment with his own series where he has moved on from the streets of London to the dusty outbacks of Australia. His past returns to haunt him as he moves to the world of uh, back to the world of crime after leaving behind pickpocketing to become a But let's start with Channel 4's comedy series Big Boys now in its second season. Writer Jack Rook's loosely autobiographical show tells the story of Mummy's boy Jack becoming the first in his working class family to go to university where he becomes best friends with Danny with the help uh, uh, where they help each other through various personal crises. Chris Wasser, Jen Gannon with me in studio this evening. We're going to start with Big Boys and if I'm going to start straight away with a clip because it's it's um, it's the character, the Dan, D- Dylan Llewellyn character of Jack basically telling us what happened in season one. Everyone said the first year of a uni degree doesn't count. It's something that happened, but of no real value whatsoever. A bit like when Liz Truss was Prime Minister or Jade joined the Sugar Babes. It ultimately provided absolutely nothing. But for me, first year of uni was where I started to discover myself. I left my cushy home as a full-time closeted mummy's boy and entered the world of Brent Uni, which ranked at number 138 out of 139 for student satisfaction. Oh, shit. I tried drugs, butt plugs, I even drank some poppers. I just taste metal. But mostly, I made pals with this lot. There was you. Somehow, despite the fact you bought yourself Lynx Africa gift sets and didn't find Jeremy Clarkson's bullshit books unbearable... You still became one of the best mates that I'd ever had. And whilst I fucked up trying to figure out who I was, you were dealing with struggles of your own. There you go. That is uh, Dylan Llewellyn with the opening sequence in Big Boys Season 2 uh, on Channel 4. As I said, Chris Wasser and Jen Cannon with me in studio this evening. Um, we certainly get a sense in that opening uh, voiceover, Jen, of the nature of the comedy here but also the background story of season one, which is basically how Jack, played by Dylan Llewellyn, and Danny, played by John Pointy, became best buds. And that is something that you don't generally see on mainstream TV, on a sitcom, Mm. is the burgeoning or blossoming platonic relationship between two boys, two, like, young men. Because Jack's character is gay. uh, Exactly. And he's an oddball. Like, he is, as he said, a self-confessed mummy's boy. And you you see in season one how, you know, the death of his father, who was this black cab driver, affected 
impacted the relationship. Like him and his mother have this, ver- Peggy have this very close relationship and he ended up deferring college for a year after having a breakdown when it came up to his dad's first anniversary and him and his mom sat on the couch all day together watching TV and he even said they were like Holly and Phil in this morning but they were more depressed like Ruth and Eamon and like it's those kind of brilliantly yeah. incisive pop culture references that are this show is just littered with them and the writer Jack Rook he uh narrates the show in an almost Wonder Years style. So he's looking back on his life through the eyes of, you know, the actor David Llewellyn as his younger version of himself, his younger doppelganger. And as he says in the first season as well, look, it's always good to get someone way better looking than you to play yourself (laughs) on telly and why wouldn't you? Um, But that, it it has this brilliant mix, like you're saying there, of like, there's a real depth to it that you don't see coming, as I say, with the bereavement kind of things and with, you know, Jack, with Danny's problems, his friend Danny, played by John Pointing his struggles with depression that is all touched on in something that seems on the surface very light and very zingy but it but has a there. lot of depth yeah, to it Yeah I mean and obviously we're dealing with his coming out of that, the, mm. the, the Jack characters coming out as being gay we're dealing with Danny dealing with his family background we're also dealing with two other characters who share uh, first year uni I said they shared a flat together in the in the first year and they're looking for a house now at the beginning of the second year as well um, Yemi uh, played by Eliza O'Dell and Corinne, the Scottish feminist, played by uh, Zuka Hoyle. Hoyle. Again, very funny dynamic between all four of them, but some serious points in there too, Chris. Some serious points. And I think um, this, like maybe another sitcom that that, that uh, uh, Dylan Llewellyn was a part of, Derry Girls, this is very good at just kind of planting these things in the background to let you know the time and the place. Not just to, not to, just to let you know where the show is, but mm. when it is. So the Scottish uh, independence referendum is coming up. It lets you know that a couple of other important things happened that year, like Conchita Verse won the Eurovision or Alison Hammond is in Strictly. Uh, the first legal gay marriages were happening in the UK. This is all very important mm. to, 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 to Jack. Um, but yes, rather than just the two boys living in this blue shed on the edge of campus, this year it's going to be all four of them. And it's actually Danny, played by John Pointing, who's left to, to find accommodation. But this is the beginning of a of a, of a nightmare for students where to find accommodation was just next to impossible and every house that they go looking yeah. at there's something wrong with it so all four of them end back and end up in this blue shed where the walls are too thin where nobody has any privacy <laughs> and just everyone can hear everything that's going on Sean we'll just leave it at that yeah and, it and there's a lot of things going there's on. a lot of things going on <laughs> in all of the rooms in all of the yeah, rooms often all at the, the same time, time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, without giving anything away there's a cousin here as well as in yes. the mammy's cousin uh, the mammy is Peggy uh, and then cousin Shannon, played by Harriet Webb, she, she has a, a she has a, a new a new story a new story that we don't want to give away. But she has a big no. big thing that she keeps telling people, but even though she and wants she's to keep a, a the big presence in it. She's kind of the big yeah. new presence in it. Whereas I think you know last season they were trying to just set up everything the rubrics of Danny and Jack's relationship. Mm. Whereas this season it broadens it out. You know the characters, you're familiar with them, and then Shannon comes to the forefront as the, there is a real kind of royal family feel of this as well because it is that very loving, warm kind of comedy where you know the. But it's, it's the the family aren't your enemies. They're your, they're your friends, but they're your annoying friends in, in one way because you spend, yeah. you know, familiarity breeds contempt and that's the way kind of that, that relationship is with Shannon and she's out there and, you know, she has an ASOS delivery addiction, put it that way, and, <laughs> which ends up like in more ways than one giving her a, a, a new lease of life. Yeah, and while the royal family, you know, had this kind of 
easy, slow pace, kind of observational, improvisational feel to it. This zings along oh, at yeah. an incredible speed. Oh, there's about 60 minutes worth of material in these 22, 24 minute comedies. And it's fabulous. You know, you can watch the assembled. little show. You can watch two if you have the time. You, you're, well, is it, is it going to be streamed? Would, would uh, yeah, be yeah. It's you all can, there on, it's all on there. Channel 4 it's right there now right for now. free. Yeah. So season one and two. And I would say for people, if, you know, they're just starting this to fly through, you can breeze through season one. And I think it's really important to watch the great episode, the, one of the, the finale episode of season one, where Jack finally comes out to his mother, Peggy. It's one of the most emotionally yeah. beautifully written scenes I've seen in, in long and many a year definitely I should say as well that Jack Rook gets a lot of credit and deservedly so for the writing but it's one thing to write a clever funny capable screenplay or teleplay it's another to find the cast that have that genuine care and chemistry between them and there is a very strong connection between this yeah. cast some of the best that I've seen mm. and I think John Pointing and Dylan Llewellyn and especially those two guys have been a part of two very successful sitcoms over the last few years like Derry, Derry Girls, Girls and, and this and Smothered with John Pointing which we reviewed before Christmas I mean you're lucky if you get one these guys are on a roll at the minute and they do they are wonderful together and it is one of the loveliest male partnerships that I've seen on television in yeah. quite and a while and then it's, fr- it's a friendship based thing which is just great to see that yeah. uh, I think that Danny could the character of Danny could have been just a cliche a walking hormone you know a lads 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 yeah. kind of guy and the depth that it brings to it and that knockabout easy relationship that the two have and, and that blossoms throughout yeah. the show is just beautiful to watch you know um, uh, any, any any kind of caveats and all of I think no. the only th- caveat I would have is that I hope it's not the final season there's an air of finality to the last uh, episode of, of this current season but I would hope I'm holding out for one last semester with Jack and the lads I'm hoping it will happen right. um, so, um, and do, do any caveats no, from you I would watch these yeah. guys I would watch this show all day I think it's always a good thing when you come away and say I wish those guys were my friends yeah. well maybe there'll be a third year in university maybe they, some of them will do a master's and some of them might <laughs> the be yes. the PhD in Alison Hammond is coming yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ok ok Sunday's on Channel 4 if you want to watch it in the traditional style Big Boys Season 2 but it's available as uh, Jen was saying and Chris fully now to stream and you can watch season one you'll watch it very quickly oh, you could watch all right. like there are half an hour yeah. episodes each okay let us move on then to the artful dodger this uh, stars a perfectly cast I think it's safe to say Thomas Brody Sangster as the main character of Jack Dawkins you know who Jack Dawkins is even if you don't think you do probably Chris yeah it's a weird one but I never really came away after reading Oliver Twist or seeing it on stage or seeing it on screen and thinking what did Jack Dawkins do after he was caught red handed I remember there being Jack some Dawkins sort of Jack the artful dodger he was the artful dodger but I remember you know and trained under Fagan Fagan raised him as a kid I never really thought okay he's, he's, he's caught red handed he's off to Australia that should be the end of that but it fell to a, 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 a trio of Australian writers to think oh well, that, maybe that's not the end of that what if he then went to Australia and kind of turned his quick fingered ways from you know being a pickpocket into a surgeon um, and that's pretty much where, where, where we are with this Thomas Brody Sangster he is playing this version of Jack Dawkins that has a bit of a background he, he was in the uh, the, the Royal Navy um, he worked his way up he now works as a, as a surgeon people seem to like him he's not quite respected but he's championed almost as this uh, it's almost as, yeah. as though his, his, his surgery it's, it's a sport well it's, it's just I mean remember it takes place in a theatre that's it yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and you do and he have, really plays the theatrics yeah and you have people around him betting on how long it'll take to amputate someone's leg um, he thinks that he has this new life for himself in Port Victory in the 1850s in Australia but that's all about to come crashing down because Fagan played brilliantly by David Tulis 
comes in as a prisoner. Uh, he kind of suggests that, you know, he'll he'll give away what sort of background Jack Dawkins used to have. And Jack Dawkins can't have that. So he kind of, ha- he hires yeah. him. He has him as a servant. And the two of them, as it turns out, need one another. Fagan's obviously up to something where he needs, you know, the Artful Dodger to come back. And also the Artful Dodger, he's 26 pounds in debt. He loves a game of cards and he's lost in this game of cards to this cheating harbour master. So he might need Fagan to nick the I mean, we got to say, remember from Oliver Twist, he was the most lovable character apart from the gorgeous Oliver looking out at you that you wanted to mind but the art for Dodger was such good fun mm. I think that's probably the character everybody wanted to play yeah because boy. you don't want to follow Oliver he's a wet blanket like I mean <laughs> at the end of the day you want to follow somebody that has you know a bit of yeah. gumption about them and that's why you know this show works in, in one way but I because it's a good character it is a good character and the thing is it, it, it zips along like it, it really there's that, a lot of fast paced you know yeah. cuts to it and it's edited really well and it flies along and it almost feels like you're watching a video game sometimes rather than actually watching a drama yeah. unfold let's, let's, let's listen to a clip with Thomas Brody Sangster of course um, Love Actually if you can't remember me the young <laughs> fellow in Love Actually who runs through the airport that Thomas Brody Sangster uh, he takes on Captain Gaines played by Tim Minchin in a game of cards and David Hewless is here as well Fagan who interferes with his thoughts on the bet So who's this Captain Gaines geezer we're playing cards, Uncle. It's just a friendly game. I heard he hung a bloke just for looking at his missus. Oh, yeah, no, you don't even want to make eye contact with his missus. He'll chop you up into little pieces and feed you to his dog, isn't that right? Two cards, please. Oh, withdraw the bet. Withdraw the bet, give him the money. Oh, no, don't work like that, you hairy carpet bag. He said he's in, he's in. Apparently, did you have a chance to sharpen that blade? You told me to make as blunt as possible. That's right, I did too. He's right, Uncle. I gave him my word. I have been risk drunk my entire life. I always knew we'd end up here. So before I face the inevitable, may the last use of my hand be to shake yours, for I know you to be a gentleman of honour, and you have taught me a lesson that I will take to my grave. <coughs> There you go, Thomas Brody Sangster as Dodger, Tim Minchin as Captain Gaines, and David Hewless as Fagan in The Artful Dodger, which is the prequel or the the sequel, if you like, to Oliver Twist and what happened to The Artful Dodger when he went to Australia. And the the medical side of this is quite interesting in that he really is, The Artful Dodger is the big uh, theatrics guy, Mm -hmm. but there's another. stem to the story that I think yeah I think is going to be very painful very tiresome we have the inclusion of Lady Bell Fox played by Mia Mitchell and she's the daughter of the governor but she longs to be in the world of medicine and she becomes entangled in the Artful Dodger's world she she covers for him when she discovers that Fagan has stolen the the necklace of the chief of police's wife and then in return like to you know she talks to Dawkins and says, basically, I won't, you know, dob you in if you let me become a surgeon. And naturally, there is going to be this built up as this enemies to lovers story. And t- I just was like, she is this poorly sketched, you mm. know, caricature of Joe March. And and do we really need that in the year 2024? Like her feistiness is completely telephoned in. It's all denoted by she's such wild hair and she has a sharp tongue and you know, she abhors marriage and 
there's no empathy supplied yeah. to her own sister, Lady Fanny, who desperately wants to get married but can't because, you know, her sister has and no interest so, in marriage. She's goody goody two shoes. Yeah, is, is and like, Lady you know, Fanny. Lady Fanny is just used as this cheap uh, innuendo yeah, joke, yeah. and there's nothing, there's no depth to that, those characterizations at all. You never get below the surface of these characters. And I, you know, sometimes I think that's okay because it, it's not what the show is about, but then I'm like, what is the point yeah, of having you, this and, female and, character in it if you're not going to use her properly? Yeah, the music of very contemporary music is used as again the bridge yeah. the old Bridgerton trick in that in that regards Chris but the other thing that struck me was I found myself in the initial the opening 15-20 minutes quite confused with all the storylines flying around the place yeah I think it fancies itself as a sort of uh, peaky blinders at times with the anachronistic needle drops and you know gangsters running around after the Arthur Dodger um, it does move a little too fast uh, yeah and there's a little bit too much going on but at the same time the only real attention uh, the only characters that you know have been kind of fleshed out are the Arthur Dodger and Fagin because it's almost like well that's, they're the characters that people will love and they'll want to see more of so everything else around them is a bit as Jen says it is a bit sketchy mm. um, that being said David Tewell I'm, I am I will always follow him and, and, and he does bring a bit of uh, yeah. you know kind of likability and that he's, he's a bit clownish in it he's, he's the oily menace of the piece and, and I, I love watching David Tullis play those sort of characters and I think Thomas Broly Sangster despite the fact that you know he hasn't aged a day since Love Actually. That helps him out here because the Arthur Dodger, you know, on screen and on the page was always this little boy who tried to dress up as a man and play pretend as a man and wanted to be treated as such. And Thomas Brody Sangster, he still looks like a kid. Still has you know, he still looks like a kid playing pretend. Yeah. So that, that works very well. Will you stick with it? It's, uh, will you go to the end of it? It's streaming on Disney Plus from Wednesday. I can see myself getting very tired of it, but at the, at the moment it's breezy, it's likable. It doesn't really know what it's doing, but I've seen worse. Uh, I've seen worse that again another one for the posters there we go <laughs> serviceable Jen? but middling is the way I would put it it made the, the scenes of surgery which are fairly gory just yeah. m- made me miss the Nick the mm. Steven Soderbergh show about you know medical you know it was a medical period drama and I thought I'd really love to see that again <laughs> rather than watch the rest right. of this so I mean it's nothing original or inventive but I think it will sweep viewers along just by the strength of its own vivacity okay the Artful Dodgers as they say streaming on Disney Plus from Wednesday and let us move on to last one Laughing Ireland which is streaming on Prime Video for Friday I will leave it to Mr Graham Norton to explain what this one is about Welcome to Last One Laughing Ireland Ten of our finest comedians a very important mission to make each other laugh whilst resisting the urge to laugh themselves I love laughing I don't know why I'm here If you do you're out of here if you laugh now, I think your family get taken away. Jeez, not again. <laughs> All right, let's go. There we go. Graham Norton explaining um, what is involved in Last One Ireland. Um, the premise here, first of all, uh, what did you think, Chris, this idea of putting 10 Irish comedians, Last One Ireland, into a room and who, if you laugh, you're out. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's kind of an easy one to talk about, but kind of tricky to get your head around at the same time. It's based on a Japanese format that just took off. In 2016, uh, you had the original show. It was called Hitoshi Matsumoto Presents Documental. And in Japan, they took 10 famous comedians, put them into a room, had a famous host who was Hitoshi Matsumoto. And he was dishing out yellow and red cards. You get a yellow card if because you have these comedians in a room for six hours mm. telling jokes 
but they're not allowed to smile or laugh themselves and the people they're telling the jokes they're not allowed to smile or laugh and if you laugh or smile you get a yellow card if you do it again you're evicted you're right. that's the basic setup they're all put into this big brother-esque environment the host watches them we watch them and you know they hope that we will laugh along but at the same time it's it's a little bit awkward to yeah. watch this took off it's now the most popular uh, prime video series of all time in Italy, Germany and France it took off in Canada there's a South African one in development with Trevor Noah as a host so it made sense that it would eventually come to Ireland because you know it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a natural kind of transition and we're only in preview mode here so mm. we can't talk too much about what we thought but uh, it, the, the lineup of the lineup cast that's involved uh, yeah. it, quite a cast really. great, like, I mean it's a great lineup like Ashlyn B Deirdre O'Kane Jason Byrne you know Tony Cantwell Emma Doran Amy Huberman like there's people Paul Tyler like, like household names and, mm-hmm. and you know that they're funny bones amazing comedians like um, and putting them all together is its selling point but I mean for me I just think there's something about that concept that struck me as being very self-conscious about you know that setup where you're forcing people to laugh that doesn't always kind of give you true but aren't, aren't comic we, aren't moments we, aren't we forcing them not to laugh. No, but they want to get, you know, if they want to get people to out. Funny. Like, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's a bit like seeing how the sausage is made and, and do we want to see how, you know, a comedian's mind ticks over, to, you know, to make comedy? I don't know. I don't know how well that's going to go down, but I do think the lineup is good enough for people to kind of maybe forget that after the first episode and just continue on with it. But I do think there is something at the moment where there... TV execs are scrambling to get the new Taskmaster because Taskmaster was such um, an unconventional and surprising success. And Taskmaster is like this mix between the Krypton Factor and Jackass where you have these, you know, it's a game show where it showcases Mm. the amazing talent of several different comedians. It's had 16 seasons and spin-offs like everywhere from, you know, New Zealand to Norway. And execs are thinking, what can be the next franchise that we can do like this? And I think that's what is in the minds of Amazon Prime with this. And I don't know if it can reach those dizzy heights of that silliness. But I am glad that, you know, we're on the quest to try and push comedians to this unhinged level of yeah. silliness on TV to and, watch and for the, our enjoyment. Like, whoever lasts to the end, they get 50,000 euro, 50,000 pounds. For their charity, for a chosen charity. Yeah. So I suppose there, there's, a, there's an interest in that. There will be guest appearances, can we say too much? Of the yeah, there will be involvement from not just the comedians in the room. I think we can and I just want to follow on from something that Jen was saying. It is nice to see comedians do something other than sit behind the desk and just sample material from their forthcoming show. So it is a bit of a challenge for her, however tricky it is. But yeah, we can say that Chris DeBerg will be in there, Ray Darcy and Zig and Zag. Um, so Graham Norton has been right. He's been, you know, really, he's been out there selling this show for the folks at Prime Video. But he was saying that usually sometimes when Ireland picks up an international format, it looks like a scaled down or a less glamorous version of it. And he doesn't think this is this is it with, 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 with laughing at or last one laughing Ireland you know that it's they, they've gone big on this yeah. but they've also tried to give it a, a distinctly Irish flavour by having those cameos and I appreciate and, that and also you would have to say that the, the Irish comedians who are involved a lot of them would have a big a profile across mm. the UK anyway, yeah. so it but it will help watched. some of the but it will help some so of the newcomers like profile. Tony Cantwell yeah. uh, Tony Cantwell Catherine Bohart it will introduce them to international audiences so, so that's always a good it? thing I, I want to see how it develops so I mean that's interesting enough I suppose okay me. Chris? Yeah. I'm cautiously optimistic. Cautiously <laughs> optimistic and not neither of you even cracking a smile as you say that because that's the rule of the game. Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser there um, talking to us about Last One Laughing Ireland streaming on Prime Video from Friday. Uh, the Arkville Dodgers streaming on Disney Plus from tomorrow and Big Boys Season 2 Saturday, Sundays I beg your pardon on Channel 4 but all available to stream right now on the Channel 4 website. 
You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena. A brown-eyed girl in hand-me-downs Whose name I never could pronounce Said pity please the ones who serve Oh, isn't it just wonderful to hear at 17 from Janice Inn, who is one of our guests on the second of our two Tradfest specials that we will be broadcasting from Dublin Castle on Monday and Tuesday of next week. Another legend of folk will join her that night, Ralph McTell. And during the show, Janice and Ralph will hand over to some young guns to reinterpret their music. Aoife Scott and Toshin will be there as well. If that wasn't enough for you, we'll have Neil Martin and Louise Mulcahy performing from Neil's new musical epic, The Thinking of RMS Taylor, The Lost Story of the Victorian Titanic. The Monday night broadcast, we'll be bringing you classic night perform- classic performers from Stockton's Wings and new talent in the form of Yankari Afrobeat Collective who will bring fresh and funky vibes to the proceedings. We'll also have hip-hop and trad artist Strange Boy and the Irish-Indian duo Indie Celtic as part of Monday night's broadcast. Now there's two events, I think, either one of them, would banish the mid-January blues for you. If you'd like to attend the events, just log on to tradfest.com. Of course, we will be broadcasting live from Dublin Castle on both nights and looking forward enormously to that. In 2017, sticking with that number, the renowned classicist Emily Wilson published The Odyssey, becoming the first woman ever to translate Homer's epic poem. Her text is composed in iambic pentameter, Shakespeare's favourite, and was widely praised for its readability, bringing the classic tale to broad new audience. Last autumn, her version of The Iliad was published. It depicts the grim realities of all-out war and the harrowing conclusion to the siege of Troy. On February the 3rd, Emily Wilson will talk about the art of translation as part of the fourth annual Classics Now Festival, and I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by Emily. And I have to start with the 17 question, Emily. Were you 17, younger or older, when you learned the truth about Homer, and what did he teach you? (laughs) I was... I mean, in a sense, I was eight. I was younger because I first um, got exposure to the stories of Homer from a school production, elementary school production of The Odyssey. Um, But maybe I was closer to 17 by the time I started reading it in Greek. (laughs) And I love the fact that you started that you started reading it in Greek. I'm interested also, though, that it was a school production of uh, the Homer, it was, it was the Odyssey you said that you saw at... It at, was the Odyssey, which yeah. is they're very much more kid-friendly. There's less, less death, yeah. <laughs> but there's more you know, but, kick-ass goddesses and but the, killing. The, the point being that it was a dramatised version of it that you saw, which kind of says something about the nature of the tale as you first encountered it, that it is high drama. It's epic. It's epic and it's high drama. It's proto-dramatic. Of course, the Homeric poems were earlier than Athenian tragedy. They're earlier than Sophocles or Aeschylus. But they, they in a way, inform the development of tragedy, of drama, and they have so much drama in them. So much of the Iliad is people talking as well as people doing exciting things. Yeah, they, they, they tell us what they're at. They tell us the stories. And in fact, sometimes it's a simple invocation to somebody to tell us the story. That's what it's all about. It really is an oral form. It really is oral. I mean, a lot of what I wanted to do in these translations was to have the reader be invited to read out loud, even if you're not listening to the audiobook, which I would, I would recommend doing if you feel like reading, listening to audiobooks. But also, just even if you're reading it, you, I want you to feel 
that that pulse of the beat, the meter, which is so audible in the Greek. Mm. I want you to feel that in the English. And they are very different tales in in tone. The Odyssey, you know, um, Odysseus basically finding his way home after the wars. The Iliad is we are right slap bang in the middle of the Trojan Wars. It's gory. It's violent. It's very violent and very and very upsetting. I mean, it's it's so much focused on the intertwining of rage and grief, and how grief leads to rage, leads to more killing, leads to more grief, more rage, and how can you ever get out of that tragic cycle, which you know we're so aware of in in the world today, in so many places around the world. But conflict is at the centre of the Iliad and mortality. In fact, I believe that you, you spoke to contemporary veterans was it mostly veterans of the vietnam war in fact that you spoke to uh, about i've the... talked to both i mean i've talked to to both cadets who are training for future wars and also various veteran groups who've which always includes veterans who've served in several different wars i mean there's i i live in the u.s so it's very often veterans of iraq or the korean war or vietnam depending on their generation they mm. or afghanistan and for all of them, the Iliad resonates in these different ways, no matter what the terrain of the war they've served in is. It resonates with the that, that focus on the comradeship of men in war and also these terrible things which are so hard to talk about if you're a veteran coming back after having seen um, these horrors and having killed people. How do you talk about that? Homer is one way to, mm. to talk about these terrible things. Uh, one thing that I'd like you to do, I, I, I saw you doing this online and I was just so taken by hearing, because I have had not heard, I don't speak Greek, I certainly don't speak ancient Greek, the Greek that Homer would be giving us. Uh, I heard you reading a section of uh, the Iliad online and it was just the sound of it in Greek I would love to hear just to get a sense of, you know, the nature of the drama that is inherent in the language Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll just read you the or, or recite for you the beginning, and just so you have a sense, it's, it's metrical poetry. It's called dactylic hexameter. So this isn't, isn't sort of chatty Greek um, people just mm. conversationally talking to each other. It's it's metrical and and would have been performed with music. Polas dipti muspsukasai di proiapsen, hero own. Autuste her loria chuke kunesin, oio noistitapasi. Dios detalea tabula. Exudeta prota diaste ten ersanta, atredeste naxandron, kai dios achilius. And maybe you would give us the the English translation I of that then the as well, Emily. So then I'll do. I'll do. I hope that you could get the, the names mm. are there in the final bit. Well, Achilles, I certainly heard Achilles at the end there. You heard Achilles. Yes, I'll read you my translation. Goddess, sing of the cataclysmic wrath of great Achilles, son of Peleus, which caused the Greeks immeasurable pain and sent so many noble souls of heroes to Hades and made men the spoils of dogs, a banquet for the birds. And so the plan of Zeus unfolded, starting with the conflict between great Agamemnon, Lord of Men, and glorious Achilles. There we go. And it is, that's what the story we're told in the Iliad. We're well into the Trojan War. It doesn't start at the beginning and tell us the whole tale. We're, we're well into the war when, it, when, when, when Homer decides to tell us the story that he tells in the Iliad. 
It's a very sophisticated um, approach to telling a mythic story because it assumes you already know the basics about the Trojan War between the Greeks and the Trojans and the, the whole story of Helen of, of Sparta running off with Paris of Troy, precipitating the event. But it doesn't start with that. It doesn't start with the muster of the troops. We start in the final year of the war and it focuses, as that passage, passage right at the start tells mm. us, not on the conflict between Greeks and Trojans, between, but between two Greeks, between Agamemnon and Achilles, who are supposedly on the same side, and yet they're fighting each other. Fighting. And so it's, it's this complicated um, approach yeah. to warfare happens, there are circles of conflict within conflict within conflict. Yeah, and, and I mean, that infighting is quite an interesting aspect to it. But just going back to the sounds that you gave us, Emily Wilson, in, in that Greek reading, it really struck me, um, and because you don't understand, well, one doesn't understand the language, I think <laughs> y you become more aware of the sound as a result of that. But it struck me that, you know, vowels were very, were, were lengthened out. You were almost singing them. Almost singing them. I mean, there's, there are lots of different vowel sounds. I mean, one of the many ways that modern spoken Greek is very different from Homeric Greek or later classical Greek is that a lot of the vowels have become more similar to each other in modern Greek. Whereas in ancient Greek and Homeric Greek, a lot of the sound effects come from these differentiation of long vowel sounds and, the, and also from alliteration and assonance. I mean, these poetic effects, which are very very much oral effects. And my, my memory of scansion in Latin, which is quite um, quite scant really at this moment in time, but that it was much it was as much about vowel length as it was it's about, about length. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so it's 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 called a quantitative meter, where it's it, in a way it's like the bars in music. So it's not about stress in the way mm. that um, English meter is ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum. It's it's which which phrases are, are stressed, whereas in both Greek and uh, with ancient Greek and Latin poetry, it's about how long is the syllable. It has it also there's an interplay of stress and and of length. Yeah. And and one of the things um, that, that I noticed then when you were reading it in in English, I mean it's often lauded, you've been lauded particularly for the for the Odyssey and in fact in fact I've read people saying this about the Iliad as well, about this um you know, sometimes referred to almost as conversational style. It's far from conversational style. I, it strikes me that it's more about a direct, unfussy type of language rather than a conversational language. I'm very glad you said that. Yes, I think it's it's actually very misleading to present my translations as being conversational. I mean, even apart from the fact that I use very regular meter mm. and I also use phrases like cataclysmic wrath, which is not actually very <laughs> conversational at all. I mean, in most conversations, I'm not talking about cataclysmic wrath, but I but I want there to be that that possibility of the register varying as the register of the of the Greek does in terms of the mm. language and syntax. That sometimes it's extremely direct even when sometimes the vocabulary and always the meter, the music, is markedly poetic and not like regular speech, it still has this real clarity of storytelling and clarity about emotions. Uh, and indeed, you, you pick on that phrase, cataclysmic rather, and it struck me as well that, you know, that brings it into a very modern context. When we think of wars back in, in, in Greek times, ah, oh, yeah, sure, we survived those wars, the world survived and we got on with things. But at the time, it must have felt like cataclysmic wrath in, you know, in, in that period, those wars that the possibility was that the world could literally fall apart, which is what we constantly fear about any kind of conflagration of, of current conflicts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Trojan War is presented in the Iliad as, as, sort of, as, as something which will cause the complete destruction of 
the lives, culture, environment of all the people who live in the Troat, in and around the beautiful, thriving, rich city of Troy. All the cities around this, around Troy have already been sacked and destroyed. All the men have already been killed from those cities. The, the reason there are women in the, in the Greek encampment is because the Greeks have already taken those women as, as their slaves. Mm. So it's about total destruction. And in a way, it's presented as a sort of proto-world war where these people have come from these very distant lands in the West, travelled to the East, and there's going to be total destruction. And as you say, um, there are women within these camps, but they are, that awful phrase, they are the spoils of of war. What kind of uh, agency did you want to give to the female characters within the Homer epic? I mean, as a translator, it's not my job to change the story. And if if the characters don't have agency, then I'm not going to give it to them. Mm. I'm going to present the truth of what the text says in the text's perspective which is that in many cases, these women don't have, don't really have agency. They do have feelings and voices, which I think is, you know, there's this deep humanity and empathy in Homeric um, perspective and storytelling, where we get to feel how they feel. We get to hear from Hector's, the warrior Trojan Hector's wife Andromache, pleading with him not to go fight mm. and get himself killed because if he does their baby's going to be killed she's going to be enslaved the city's going to fall it's going to be a disaster for everyone um, so we get to to know how does it feel to be a woman in that position whose only possibility in terms of changing events is to beg her husband not to go and then at the end of the poem it ends with three women lamenting for Hector who has gone and got himself killed uh, or who's been slaughtered mm. by Achilles as we know he's going to be those women are the ones who are going to be left when when the men are all dead, who are left left to lament. So they, the, there is in the poem this real clarity about women's voices matter, but it's not like they can change what the men are going to do. The goddesses can change things, but the women, mortal women, not so much. Uh, huge uh, success with the Odyssey. I'm wondering what kind of pressure that put on you when it came to writing the Iliad. And do you have a favourite child between the two? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I, I certainly felt the pressure. I mean, I felt the pressure about both of them because I love these original mm. poems so much, and I didn't. I wanted to, you know, do them justice, and that's a really tough assignment. Um, I mean, it, it also was felt like a great privilege just to get to spend the last twelve years sort of so intimately connected to Homer and so intimately engaged in this process of trying to recreate the the poetic and sonic and as well as semantic emotional effects of these great poems. Um, but my favourite child, I don't know. I mean, I think probably the Iliad is my favourite poem ever. But yeah, I love the Odyssey too. Ah, well, there you go. The younger is always the spoiled of the two children. Yes. More spoiled of the two <laughs> children. <laughs> the Iliad is the most recent at the moment. There may be a third. Who knows? It won't be from Homer. It'll have to be from somebody else. <laughs> Emily, thanks for speaking with us this evening. Thanks so much. That's Emily Wilson. And Emily will be joining Charlotte Higgins to discuss the Iliad and the art of translation. That's all part of the Classics Now Festival. That event takes place on at 8pm on Saturday, February the 3rd. It's also available online. No booking required. Classics Now is on from February the 2nd through until the 4th. Many more in-person and online events. You can find out full details on the website classicsnow.ie.
Now, the Emmys last night, the Golden Globes a week ago. You might be forgiving things, thinking that January is all about film awards and film awards only. Well, you're wrong. The Dublin Literary Award is one of the most lucrative international prizes. Its long list was announced today, sponsored by Dublin City Council. €100,000 goes to the writer of the winning novel. Four Irish novels are among the 70 nominated by 80 libraries around the world. And that nominating process is one of the more unusual aspects of the Dublin Literary Award. Here to tell us more is Chris Morish, Chair of the Judging Panel, with me in studio. Coming in with seven books, where are the other 63, Chris? They're actually in the boot of my car at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And we have to be very clear, you have not quite chosen these seven at random, but you just you've brought a sample of the kind of the the variety that's across this short list of, or yeah, long list of seventy. Absolutely, this is a real lucky dip. I mean, this is. I mean, we haven't started the judging process yet, so yeah. um, you know, any, anything, anything could you happen. have today is pure accident. Anything although we will be forgiven for pointing out that there are four Irish writers on the are, on on the are, long list. So maybe are. we could concentrate on those first. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The four the four on the long list um, from Ireland are Joseph O'Connor's My Father's House. Um, Haven by Emma Donoghue Hmm. Um, Sebastian Barry's um, Old God's Time um, and um, a, sail- a Soldier Sailor by, by, by Claire Kilroy. By Claire Kilroy. Yeah. And obviously Sebastian Barry was one of those who was shortlisted or longlisted recently for the, for the booker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like Sebastian's compassion for the world just keeps expanding. I mean, it's a lovely, lovely novel about this retired detective, Tom Kettle. And it captures that sort of sense of confusion that can come over mm. a mind you know, in, in later years and tells the story through his through his kind of confusion. Beautifully, beautifully told. And a, de- mm. a kind of a detective of kinds in oh, some yeah. ways in Joseph yeah. O'Connor's book, um, My Father's House, which people would say, it's a while from that that has been out, but that's part of the process well, here well, that's in the Dublin Literary Award. It's not the books of last year. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that makes this prize so special is that where other, most other literary prizes are driven by publishers, publishers nominate. The Dublin Literary Award the nominations, the whole long list, all 70, come from libraries all around the world. 80 libraries from around the world, from 35 countries. Mm. So in order for that to work, we have to give them a kind of longer lead-in time. So the books on this year's long list were published between the 1st of July 2022 and the end of June in this past year, 2023. So they can go back quite a way. And for book and translation, the original version in the original language could have gone back as far as 2013. Yes. Yeah, it could, could, could go back. quite far back. Yeah. And that translation aspect is another of the unusual aspects of this prize. Uh, if the winner should be a translated book, the translator gets part of the prize. The, the translator gets 25,000. And, you know, that is that is significant for a translator. Mm. I mean, I know translators who have won this and they've said it's been, you know, life-changing. Yeah. That they can take a year and translate what they want instead of what they have to translate. Yeah, they're not, they're, they're not waiting for a commission they're yeah, doing something yeah, that they yeah. that they really want yeah. to do themselves. I mean, last, last year's translator, Joe Heinrich, had been translating shoe advertisements from German. It was her first translation. And what was the book again? Just remind me. Marzan Monomore by Katja Oskamp. Yes, and she so instead of away from the shoe adverts, away from the shoe literary translation, literary translation. Let us just uh, mention uh, briefly the other two Irish long listed books. Claire Kilroy's Soldier Sailor. Many people felt was should have been had got some sort of uh, mention in the recent Booker Prize. Uh, It's a lovely, lovely novel. Anybody who ever has been a parent and knows 
that period just after your child is born, where you live life with this intensity focused on this little being who can't talk back to you, uh, <laughs> she just captures that. Uh, the, the novel is largely addressed to the child, to the baby, and there's just wonderful descriptions of, you know, the child, you know, banging his, his duplo like a gavel, and it's just lovely, mm. lovely novel. And finally then, in this in this set of four, Emma Donoghue's Haven. Yeah, I mean, Sutton Skellig Michael, I mean, she just keeps doing different things. For, how many men on the boat are heading out to... Two, two. two. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, and if you've ever been there, you wonder, how did they do it? How did they live here? She goes through all that. In some ways, you know, for a novelist known for room, it's mm. kind of like room offshore. You know, what happens when you put people in this confined space and boat. what happens to them? But in this case, boat. <laughs> Our yeah. island. An island, yeah. 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 Uh, 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 would you consider it an historical piece, an yeah, historical yeah, novel? Yeah, then? Yeah, and to yeah. what extent does it speak to the, because they often do speak to the contemporary in some way, historical novels? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, she has her historical detail down pat. I mean, there's really a lot of research behind this. I mean, I think it kind of comes out of the COVID period. Mm. You know, remember she published Pull of the Stars, which was about a you know epidemic at the beginning of the of COVID, without knowing what's happening. Yes, yeah. And I think this is kind of that lockdown novel in some ways. Yeah, that's interesting that uh, that you, you feel it, it it plays into that. Um, are there others in the in the international categories that you think have come out of that COVID time and specifically speak to it? Yeah, I think they probably do. I mean, one would be Paul Harding's This Other Eden, which was on the Booker shortlist mm. as well, uh, which is set in a small island off the coast of Maine. And it's based on a real historical incident where there was this really diverse kind of multiracial community of people who just washed up on the island and made a life for themselves. And it's, again, this case of kind of living off the grid and making your own world. Yeah, Paul Harding, who was the other Paul, the yes, other Paul right, the on, other the, Paul, on right. the Booker yeah, shortlist yeah, yeah, yeah. of, yeah, of last yeah. year. You also, is, is, did you bring in the biggest book? I, I brought in, the, yes, I did. Um, Alexis Wright, Praiseworthy. Um, all 700 and some pages of it. Um, Alexis Wright is... She's like the James Joyce of Australian Aboriginal writers. And one of the trends I've noticed in the literary world over the last number of years is the number of writers from Indigenous cultures who are writing. We had um, Tommy Oranges there, there a few years ago. Um, we had a Canadian novel um, last year. We had a number of novels from Indigenous writers. And it's like there's a whole different way of storytelling. Mm. There's and no it, what language is, is, is that? It's originally, writ it's written in English. Yeah. Um, but there's, a, there's an Aboriginal way of storytelling where the story can go on a very long time, as this does. Yeah. And it loops around and it doubles back and the magical and the real uh, all combine. Um, you, you won't read anything like it. Yeah, seven, 700 and, and something yeah. pages, as you say. <laughs> and yeah. the other aspect of that is that's you are the chair of the of the judging panel but the, that's what the judges are tasked with are they are they sitting down to all 70 books at this point in time how does that work when when i sit down with the judges and we'll sit down next week um, they will be familiar with all 70 books on that shortlist Wow. And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I say to them is, you know, read, read as much as you need to read to know, be familiar with it and have a good, intelligent conversation. And if we get to a point where we think, no, we need to go read more, we go back and we read more. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, the Alexis Wright book. Mm, uh, yeah. In, uh, you said it's written in English, yeah. but you, uh, you said she is uh, the, the the Joyce of Aboriginal. Uh, Absolutely. Australian. Yeah. So do we get any kind of linguistic 
tricks of that nature, the way Joyce would play around with, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. sound that had that particularly Hiberno-English feel to it. Yeah, I mean, this local influencer, a modern god preaching about the planet collapsing. They call this type of person a collapsologist, somebody specialising in collapsology. This is what he claimed to be doing, putting himself in front of the collapse to hold the thing up. And the sentence is kind of winding yes, around Yes, you can like hear that. that that's a long Making sentence. Words yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. A, a sense of the oral tradition yeah, uh, yes, within all much. of that as well. Yeah, yeah. I see that you have a, a book by Eleanor Catton in front of you I as do, well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Eleanor Catton, she won the Booker back in 2013 for the Luminaries. Mm. This is, um, again, you know, a bit like the Joseph O'Connor, uh, My Father's House, where he's using the genre of the thriller, of the kind of spy thriller, effectively. This is Eleanor Catton using the genre of the thriller. Set in New Zealand, she's a New Zealander, and you have a character who's kind of like an Elon Musk or Peter Thiel who's building a bunker in case it all comes to an end in the middle of New Zealand, and a kind of group of eco-activists get involved with him, um, and things go terribly awry. The book is called Burnham, called Wood. Burnham Wood. Hard not yeah. to think of Shakespeare's Macbeth that's, when we see that title. Does yes. it play into it? Yes, she, he, she uses that idea of Burnham, Burnham Wood coming to Elsinore. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, so yeah, that is yeah, that yeah, is part yeah. of it. Is it yeah. is it's, it's kind of is ecology and climate oh, yeah, crisis very much. very much at the yeah, heart yeah, of very what, much. what she's yeah, discussing yeah, there. Yeah. Um, uh, the other one of the other contenders, uh, four of the American, the four American nominees, in fact, one of whom is Barbara Kingsolver yeah. and the all conquering Demon Copperhead. Demon Copperheads. It's hard not to like this book. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody who's channeling Dickens, channeling David Copperfield is setting themselves up for a fall, you would but think. doing... But she does it. Yeah, and, and yeah. she she brings it into contemporary America she and the opioid does. crisis. Yeah, she does. I mean, the whole novel is a kind of riff on David Copperfield, but it's set in uh, Lee County, Kentucky, mm. um, which has one of the kind of lowest life expectancies in the whole U.S. during the opioid crisis. And it works the way Dickens works, where characters kind of emerge in and emerge out again. But again, it's just the voice is there. Yeah. I mean, look, just read and the, the names, the names of the characters, the names, I remember, are pretty, quite brilliant. brilliant. Pagets and yeah, you recognize the McCoys. Oh, that's the Macabers. But look, I mean, the voice first, I got myself born. A decent crowd was on hand to watch, and they'd always given me that much. The worst job of it was up to me, my mother being, let's just say, out of it. Yeah, yeah. Appalachia. Appal- Appalachia, as she yep. told me, is yeah. where it is set. Couple of, is there, are there, there are other books in on the long list set in Appalachia? Yeah, there is. And it's almost as if, you know, American novelists are trying to diagnose what is going wrong with America in mm. some ways. And if you're going to do that, that's perhaps the place to look. You know, this industrial heartland that's been decimated. Um, Idra Nove's Take What You Need. Again, set in Appalachia. Woman who is, main character in their name, Jean, who's a sculptor who is staying behind yeah. in a dying town, building these amazing sculptures out of steel. Did you bring any um, translated books in with you? I did. Um, I brought one called Crooked Plough by Itamar Vieira Jr., a Brazilian novel. I was in Brazil last November, and I told people I was reading this, and they all were immediately treating this like a Brazilian classic. Um, set in northern Brazil amongst people who are descendants of slaves. So it's a very particular part of the kind of Afro-Brazilian community, but it feels like an epic. It has that epic feel. And I think you've one other there that you might want. Is it Chain Gang? Yeah, I have this novel, Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kawame Ajebrenya, American writer, um, um, African-American writer. Um, And the basic premise is... Prisoners in a kind of near future United States are allowed to fight each other to the death as a chance to win their freedom. 
Now, given that the American prison population skews strongly toward yeah. uh, the black population, it's very much a kind of critique of racism. But yeah. I'll tell you how it works. It works by creating fight scenes that are so vivid. You just, you know, you want Glad to read it, them yeah. and you know you shouldn't. Yeah, gladiatorial kind yeah. of aspect yeah. to it, yeah. it, it would novel. seem. Yeah. What happens next? So you have the 70 now. You obviously have to whittle <laughs> that down. By when do you have to whittle it down to we'll, a short we'll list? Whittle it down to a short list of eight by the 26th of March and then there will be a winner at the International um, Dublin Literary Festival on the 23rd of May. 26th of March, 23rd of May. Those are the two big dates in your diary, Chris, and the the other judges as well. Thanks so much for coming into us this evening and sharing your thoughts on the long list. Thank you very much. Looking forward to hearing the short list and and looking through the long list to see if there are any books I might want to take a look at. Chris Morish there. That's uh, Chris Morish um, and full details on all of the long listed books can be found on dublinliteraryaward.ie and that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Um, Ollie, 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 Ollie Campbell, I'm going to call him, who's a rugby player. Ollie Hamilton was our broadcast coordinator this evening. Polly Shields was the researcher. Damien Chanel was on sound. And tonight's programme was produced by Keshi. I will be back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. And I do believe it's Fake No Brain On who will be with you after the news.